thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello and welcome back to Naked Neuroscience, the podcast dedicated to the most fascinating organ in the human body, our brains. I'm your host, James Titko from the Naked Scientists team. This time, I'll be getting my head around magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, with the help of Stephanie Brown, who will tell us also about a new innovation reducing anxiety for children in need of a scan. After that, we're unpicking the troubling state of youth mental health at the moment, asking why teens' well-being seems to have taken a turn for the worse over the last decade, and what we can do about it, of course. We're beginning, as usual, with the Naked Neuroscience News, where each month I invite some guests to walk us through some of the studies advancing the comprehension of our cognition. And it's a warm welcome back to Stephanie Brown from the University of Cambridge's Department of Psychiatry. How are you, Stephanie? Yes, I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Super. No, the pleasure is all mine. I wondered if for our chat this time, we could rewind a bit from where we began last month. Listeners might remember we covered the fact that you specialise in the field of MRI. How is it that the technology works, basically? Yeah, so this is a really interesting field. Obviously, I'm a bit biased because it's my area of research. But MRI stands for magnetic resonance imaging. And an MRI scanner contains a strong magnet, basically. MRI scanners come in different strengths of magnet and stronger magnets give us higher resolution in the images. So the way this works technically is protons within bodily water molecules act like very small magnets, which we can manipulate with the strong magnet inside the scanner and radio waves to form images. When it comes to why someone might be asked to have an MRI, specifically of their brain this is, what's going to have caused that? There's a variety of reasons. It could be for research purposes or it could be because it is suspected by a clinician that there may be something abnormal in the brain. In research, a commonly used technique is functional MRI or fMRI for short. And functional MRI is different to a structural MRI, which is commonly used in the clinic. And it uses blood oxygenation, which has a different magnetic properties to deoxygenated blood. If we remember, that is the iron in our blood cells that's important for carrying oxygen. And this tells us about the activity in the brain. And the idea behind this is that active neurons use more oxygen for energy. So using this information, we can create maps of the brain for which regions are using higher levels of energy when people are, for instance, resting or doing a very specific task. We know that the brain is very complicated and there's lots about it we still don't know. So what is it that an MRI or an fMRI can actually tell us? 
So brain MRIs, both functional and structural, can tell us really quite a lot about healthy psychological processes and also what might be happening when people might be suffering from diseases or disorders. So this can include things like memory, language, pain, or the physical processes that happen, for instance, during Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's. The technology is always improving, so this allows us to get further information about how the brain works in healthy and diseased states. And importantly, these changes um, that we might be able to detect on an MRI scan can be used for better and more effective diagnoses, because often having uh, or not having a biologically based diagnosis can sometimes really stand in the way of effective treatments. Mm -hmm. And so far, we've focused quite a lot on the technical side of things and how the technology works, which is great. But someone who's actually had an MRI scan will be the first to tell you, especially, I think, of their brain, it's something of an anxiety-inducing experience, isn't it? Given the sounds this machinery makes and the way you're sort of engulfed in it. Yeah, so it definitely can be. So to have an MRI, you would usually be asked to lie down on a table and go into a tube. In an MRI scanner, this is where the magnet is located. And then you're just asked to lie very still for the duration of the scan, which can vary according to what doctors or researchers might be interested in looking at. Most people actually don't mind having an MRI scan and some people find it quite comfortable or even fall asleep. However, some people may really struggle to stay still. This is especially uh, children included in this and might find the environment a bit claustrophobic or find it too noisy. But we can often find solutions to these problems. So some people may find the scanner less claustrophobic, for instance, if they've seen the scanner before and had some time to mentally prepare. You will also usually wear earplugs to minimise the noise and sometimes there can be a helpful distraction provided such as listening to music or watching something when you're in the scanner which can be um, really beneficial for reducing anxiety. Because what we want to avoid as much as possible is putting people under anaesthetic while they're undergoing these scans because there's some research to suggest isn't there that especially as you mentioned for young children there's developmental concerns of putting them under anaesthetic too frequently. Yes, that's exactly right. So this brings us on to a very interesting recent article published in the BMJ. And what they found in this research was that giving children a virtual augmented reality play kit to use ahead of an MRI um, really seemed to ease both their and their parents' anxieties about the procedure. So MRI, as we've mentioned, it's a really important diagnostic tool in children's healthcare because of the high quality images, but also the lower radiation exposure than something like a CT scan, which is particularly important for children with long term conditions. But many children really do find this a challenging experience. As you mentioned, recent research has really brought up some safety concerns about the potential impact of anesthesia on um, a child's developing brain. And this is really um, pushed forward for an initiative to reduce the number of MRI scans done under sedation. The BMJ's augmented reality innovation. What's that? <laughs> what does that even mean? 
Yeah, so so they've developed a play kit which consists of a flat packed cardboard kit for building into a small toy MRI scanner mm-hmm. um, into which the child can place their toy. And a smartphone is slotted into the side of the cardboard MRI scanner, which enables the child to take on essentially the role of a radiographer via an augmented reality app. And augmented reality superimposes a computer-generated image on a user's view of the real world. So the child can then essentially scan their toy with the addition of scanning noises to replicate the MRI experience. And the feedback from this study indicated that the play kit really helps some children and their parents and carers to prepare for the MRI scan and help to relieve anxiety as well. And the children themselves said that recalling aspects of the play kit um, during their scan helped them remain calm and still, which is obviously really beneficial and a positive step. It sounds like fun, doesn't it? Thanks very much to Stephanie Brown once again for coming on and sharing with us that new innovation, which you can read about in the British Medical Journal. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to Naked Neuroscience with me, James Titko. Now, on to this month's feature and the worrying news that mental health among young people is in an accelerating decline. According to the Child Mind Institute, 200 million children and teenagers worldwide now struggle with a mental health condition. And the most common mental health problems, depression and anxiety in particular, are the leading cause of disability among people under the age of 24. And sadly, they'll often be recurrent across someone's lifespan. Now, Suzanne Schweitzer, incoming Associate Professor at the University of New South Wales, has been studying the trends in adolescent mental health over the past decade and believes one of the key drivers of the downturn we're seeing is increases in feelings of uncertainty. This might account for, as she argues, why we see the problem getting worse during the COVID pandemic, an extremely uncertain time, of course, for so many. Young people coming of age today, they've faced very volatile financial uh, markets. They were all born during or post the global financial crises. They have experienced a steadily increased worsening of the global climate. They now don't know about the future livability of their planet, let alone with the livability of the planet for any offspring that they may have. Haven't we always lived in uncertain times, could you argue? There's been war, there's been economic downturn, there's been political upheaval for time immemorial. Absolutely, and I think that, that, that's a really good point, right? Surely, you'd say, world wars and etc., droughts, famines, etc., times of extreme uncertainty, so what's different now? Well, I don't think that they are different. The thing is that we don't know what was happening to youth mental health at a time because we've only been systematically assessing it and tracking it over the last couple of decades. And so from the time since we've been tracking youth mental health, it's the first time that we see this statistically significant increase in mental health problems. Definitely the last decade, but there's some indicators that, that, that put it even a bit earlier, sort of 2008, 2006, 2008 as a starting point in, in which this really started to significantly increase in this age group. I wonder if we could backtrack slightly and talk about uncertainty from the psychological perspective, because as much as we might say it might be a driving factor towards poor mental health, it's also in us for a reason, right? It's got its uses. Absolutely. 
See, as a species, we're incredibly averse to uncertainty. We really don't like it. So there was this early experiment in the 60s by an economist, Ellsberg. It showed that people will be willing to incur financial cost in order to avoid uncertainties. The avoidance or the trying to eradicate uncertainty is incredibly important because that gets us to try and predict the weather, that gets us to try and predict stock markets, etc. And developmentally, adolescence has always been a time of great uncertainty. It's a time point where you go from your known environment, your family environment, to with increasing independence, your world really drastically changes. Your relationship, the amount of relationships you have, the focus away from the immediate family towards peers and dynamically changing relationships. All of these scenarios are inherently novel and therefore also uncertain. We've seen time and again in behavioral research, in neuroscience research, adolescents are much more willing to go and explore their environment. And that's, again, arguably diplomatically important because to be successfully navigating their new adult environment, you have to go out and explore it. You know, we talk about how resilient children are and that, that chimes with what you're saying, that uncertainty is a fact of life when you're young and something that can't be avoided. And so you have to be able to deal with it. Yes, Beyond that, even within normative levels of uncertainty, why do some young people go on to develop mental health problems but others not? We've looked at the behavioural willingness to approach uncertainty. If uncertainty makes you feel more negative than someone else, if you're less able to cope with uncertainty emotionally, then you're more vulnerable towards developing mental health problems. But what we've not done is we haven't actually looked at intolerance of uncertainty across the lifespan. And in a recent study where we've actually done this, we see again that young people are those who report the highest levels of intolerance of uncertainty when we directly compare it to adults. So while they may be behaviourally ready, and especially in social contexts, willing to go out and explore, go out and take risks, this may actually come at an effective cost in that they may actually not feel good doing this. This may actually be, you know, distressing to them. And I guess that would make sense as to why you become more risk averse as you age, because you begin to associate uncertainty with these not nice feelings. That's exactly right. And so we see we see an increase in sensation seeking and risk taking over the course of adolescence and it peaks sort of in late adolescence around 18 to 19 year old where it then decreases to stable adult levels. At the same time we see that behavioral avoidance of uncertainty increases throughout adolescence so they do sort of co-occur. I think the important part is also what type of uncertainty are you talking about? So in the context of the pandemic, of course, we were able to look at different types of uncertainty. Well, that was going to be my next question. Perhaps an obvious point to clarify, but what about the pandemic could you analyse from the psychological perspective as enhancing this malaise of uncertainty? You would think, surely health uncertainty would be maladaptive to mental health or detrimental to your mental health. We do see that increased health anxiety was associated with more depression and anxiety symptoms more broadly as well. So while we did see that 
we didn't see this pattern as clearly in the data compared to other types of uncertainty. And indeed, young people, when they were asked explicitly about what caused them the most distress about the pandemic, then uncertainty worries about the health of their loved ones, their next of kin, their friends, was really high. But the concern that was highest above everything else was concerns, their social concerns, the worry about not being able to see their friends. And now in some way, this could simply be interpreted, oh, well, there's a loss of social interaction and that's what's causing the distress. That's what's causing the increase in mental health problems. But we've argued from a neuroscience perspective, we know that isolation is interpreted as exclusion. And at no other time points in our lives are we more sensitive to exclusion, exclusion by others, social exclusions, than during adolescence. And so there really seems to be something about this sensitivity to social exclusion that was driving the distress in these young people. Suzanne Schweitzer outlining uncertainty as one of the potential key drivers of the current youth mental health crisis. Suzanne would be the first to tell you, though, that this is not as simple as pointing to a single cause of mental ill health and then swiftly dealing with it. When we're trying to find solutions to teen well-being, we have to accept that there is no silver bullet. Instead, by incorporating the full picture of where health emerges in adolescence, taking into consideration things like diet, sleep, social media use, so on, we might be able to prevent the pattern from proliferating and treat those who are suffering. I visited the University of Cambridge's MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit to speak with neuroscientist Camilla Nord. I think when thinking about the treatment of mental health conditions in adolescence, you can think about it in a sort of policy angle, in a prevention angle, and maybe those are the angles that are more likely to kind of capture people with milder forms of mental health conditions. But then it's always very important to consider those adolescents where maybe no matter what, maybe if they'd never had any exposure to social media, they had a perfectly aligned sleep schedule with their school and so on, um, no matter what, they may have experienced a mental health condition. And so I think it's very important to think about people who are genuinely functionally impaired and are treatment seeking in adolescence and finding the right treatments for them not necessarily just mapping on a treatment that works in adulthood directly onto adolescents or even younger children because often there are sort of quite important differences that need to be studied and experiments that need to be run. But on the bright side, I think there are very effective, especially kind of cognitive behavioral interventions in adolescence. And you could argue, I don't know if anyone's ever studied this, but you could argue that because adolescence is this kind of vulnerable period for mental health conditions, maybe teaching someone and training someone the kind of cognitive behavioral techniques that come out in therapy could have not only a beneficial effect on their mental health then, but maybe longer lasting afterwards, which is something we typically see in therapy that it has this longer lasting effect afterwards. And then I also think there's space for other more experimental treatments. So I know, for example, in the UK, there are researchers interested in expanding our provision of non-invasive brain stimulation, like repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a form of magnetic brain stimulation. It changes the electrical activity um, mildly. You get several doses. It doesn't involve surgery or, or anything like that. 
Um, and I know that there are some initial trials showing it, its efficacy in depression. So I think keeping a perspective on treatment that includes people from the milder end to people who are adolescents but who have really quite serious mental health conditions and we need to consider the kind of whole range of treatments for all of them. The role of drugs in treatment. I don't think anybody's advocating that we do away with drug treatments for mental health conditions. They've got a very important role to play. Do you get a sense of a, of a shift though away from prescribing drugs for some mental health conditions? Is that a fair assessment that there's a general direction of travel away from them or is that far too simplistic? It's hard to say. I mean, you say that no one is advocating to stop drug treatments in mental health conditions, but actually I would say some people really are, some people on the more radical end. Personally, I think all mental health treatments should be accessible if they've been demonstrated to work better than placebo in those conditions. And many drug treatments that we use far surpass that criterion. They're very, very effective. Something like antidepressants, very effective. But I do think it's really important to not just kind of extrapolate from adult data to actually use adolescent data because the correct or sort of the optimal drug treatment might not be the same for people at different developmental stages. And this brings us a little bit closer to a precision medicine framework where I think ultimately what we need is not just a blanket, oh, everyone should try a drug first or everyone should try therapy and no drugs, but actually a more nuanced decision process where when someone is initially processed for treatment, we have some way of predicting what would be the best treatment for that person. And this is often discussed only in the context of adults sort of figuring out whether they'd be better off on therapy or antidepressants and which antidepressant and so on. But actually, maybe even more important in adolescence, just a little harder because you're sort of hitting a moving target throughout development. Is the fact that we're not always able to treat a mental health condition with a particular form of therapy or a particular drug, is that necessarily a bad thing? I think it can initially seem pessimistic to say, you know, as I would suggest, that there isn't a single cause of poor mental health or a single solution out of it. But actually, I think if we better understand the sort of diverse causes for poor mental health, the diverse roots towards a mental health condition or just worse mental health generally, then we can map those on better to the various treatments that we have in our arsenal. So if we understood, for example, that one adolescent's poor mental health came from a sort of combination of different particular circuits in her brain, or perhaps if you want to think more psychologically, different kind of beliefs about the world, then we could have a better way of mapping those dysfunctions onto the treatments that we know work to target those particular differences. Camilla Nord from the University of Cambridge. And I urge you to read her new book, The Balanced Brain, The Science of Mental Health. Now, to round off our monthly romp through the science of the mind, it's time for Brain to Z. In each episode, I'll be providing you with a piece of bite-sized brain science on a topic related to the next letter of the alphabet. Now, naturally, that means kicking off with A, and we're focusing on the amygdala. Amygdala is the Greek word for almond. It refers to two correspondingly sized regions of the brain found deep within our temporal lobes. If you can imagine two lines, one passing straight through your eye and one through your ear, 
the amygdalae sit roughly where those two lines would intersect on both sides of your head, and they play a large role in our emotional responses. I mentioned how deep within the brain the amygdala sits, and as a general rule, the deeper you dive into the anatomy of the brain, the more primitive and universal the propensity for a particular response. For example, the brainstem, the deepest layer and the first to form, is chiefly responsible for controlling our non-voluntary body functions like our breathing or our alertness, things like blinking in bright light or rebalancing yourself when the train carriage you're standing in lurches to a stop. The amygdala has a role in more complicated bodily functions, so it acquires information from our various sensory systems, our ability to see, hear and smell, and paints a picture combining all these inputs. This then informs parts of the body involved with emotional responses. But it's not just using the information from our eyes and ears, etc. The amygdala is also using signals delivered to it from other parts of the brain, from the brain stem to the cerebral cortex, the outermost layer, where the most complicated neural processes are occurring. So it's very effective at aggregating all of this information and getting us to behave accordingly. The amygdala helps us build relationships between stimuli and responses in what's known as Pavlovian conditioning after one of the most famous set of experiments in psychology. Ivan Pavlov was a physiologist studying digestion in dogs. And while investigating the salivation process, he realised that his test subjects, before the food had even appeared, were beginning to salivate as soon as the person feeding them had entered the room. So, to investigate further, he conducted experiments where he rang a bell before his dogs were fed. Now, once they'd become accustomed to this noise before mealtimes, ringing the bell caused them to salivate without the food even being delivered. A very significant finding, if a little bit cruel. The amygdala plays a vital role in this process, see, recognising the biologically significant stimulus the dogs were exposed to, in this case the sounds of the bell, and triggering the emotional response, the saliva forming in their mouths. But it's the amygdala's role in fear and stress with which it is most commonly associated, our so-called fight-or-flight response. Its effectiveness at forming connections between memory and emotion means that it's responsible for kicking our body into action at the sign of a perceived threat. When you encounter sudden danger, stress hormones are released and you may freeze, for example, to stay hidden from a predator. Sometimes, however, this means misinterpreting fairly safe situations as dangerous, as our rational mind takes time to catch up with our instinctive reaction instigated by the amygdala, leaving us confused as to why our body has responded to a harmless stimulus in such an extreme way. The connections it forms can be so strong that it forms the root of mental health conditions, like PTSD, for example. Back with more Brain to Z next month. And sadly, that's a wrap on this edition of Naked Neuroscience. Do please get in touch with any feedback to jamest at nakedscientists.com. Thanks again to all our guests today, and thanks to you for listening. I'm James Titko. Until next time, goodbye. Hold up. 
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.